Hey everybody, welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ podcast. My name is Phil Bruns and thank you so much for taking time from your day to be with us. Well, today we continue on our summer growing season series and we're excited to have our guest Bobby Pearson today share with us some tips on how to bloom like a flower in the desert. Thank you so much, Phil, and welcome to everyone out there in internet land tuning in. We are excited. I'm grateful to have this opportunity to continue the Blue Ridge Church of Christ's Summer Growing Season Sermon Series. We've been going through several Old Testament character studies. First, uh, my friend Rob did a, uh, uh, did a lesson on Jacob, and then Phil last week taught us about a remarkable woman named Jochebed kind of a deep cut in the Old Testament. Uh, she, this was a woman who was not afraid of Pharaoh's edict that all Hebrew boys should be put to death at birth, but uh, she actually hid her child by faith from Pharaoh's men and was vindicated in an amazing way. And I hadn't planned this beforehand. I didn't realize that Phil had chosen Jochebed, uh, but I'm going to move right along in Exodus to see what became of Jochebed's son. Now for the astute Bible scholars out there. You might have heard of him. He's an obscure Bronze Age internet nobleman named Moses. So if you're a, if you're a deep Bible scholar or if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you should be mostly caught up. So jump over with me to Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all of the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Israel was at a crisis point here. Moses had been gone for just a few weeks and they were on the verge of apostasy breaking the very first and most important laws they had so far received. Do not make any silver or gold representations of God. Listen to Moses as God's prophet. Like, that's it. And the and for breaking those, the entire covenant now hung in the balance. They were only several months after the uh, parting of the Red Sea. They had, they had seen the miracles. This isn't like they were at the end of 40 years in the wilderness. This was this was right at the beginning, in fact, of their, uh, of their great journey to the promised land. And what were their options? 
What could have happened to them? I love playing these what-ifs. Not that anything could have happened outside of God's will, but it's a useful thought exercise to think what could have happened to the people. They could have returned to Egypt and to slavery. This is something that they continually threatened to do. Israel could have completely dissolved uh, into the surrounding nations. Every, every man goes his own way. Uh, God's protection could have been withdrawn in the face of rebellion, and Israel would have faced annihilation. Or, oh, and really the worst of all, without deliverance, there would be no chosen people, and there would be no Messiah. So we can definitely take that longer view, looking from the Old Covenant to the New, thinking, if these people fail here, God's entire plan could be in jeopardy, which is a sobering thought that God chooses to entrust the most important, most precious things into the hands of people. Now, how could Moses respond? He could have responded with frustration and aggression. He could have violently taken charge, said, everybody get in line and do what I say. He could have fallen into despair and just run away and retreat. He could have frozen up and just done nothing. Or he could have, as God seemed to be prompting him to do, he could have asked or just allowed God to wipe Israel out and start over. How have we responded in these kinds of crisis situations? I tend towards a mix of all of the wrong options above. I can be a mix of fright and flight and fear and the other F that escapes me. But let's, let's go back and take a look at some of the key moments in Moses' life that God used to prepare him for this moment. And as we do, I want you to think about how God has been working in all phases of your life through belief and unbelief, through childhood, through adulthood, to prepare you for the work that he has set out for you. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, in Hebrew it's he saw that there was no man, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Let's pause right there. There are a few things to note about this passage that really jump out at me. Twice in one verse, twice in verse 11, the text emphasizes that Israel is his people. He went out to his people and the Egyptian was beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Whenever the Bible repeats a phrase like that, it does so for emphasis. And we can see that Moses had a strong personal tie of kinship to the Israelites. It's not clear how, but he has a, a real sense of belonging with these people. He has an obligation to their welfare, and he feels indignation that they're being mistreated. His dilemma is what to do with these feelings. Have you known something about yourself from a young age that God maybe wanted to bring out and grow and develop? Maybe you had a desire that everyone plays fair when you're playing board games and you suspect that somebody is cheating and you just want to flip the board and confront them. Or maybe you have a need to know what's true from what's made up. I remember when I was a kid, I was uh, an obnoxious 10-year-old and I made a made a principled decision that I wasn't going to read fiction anymore because it wasn't true. I was only going to read nonfiction, and I was totally obnoxious about it and probably unpleasant if anybody were to have asked me about it. But these are things that God puts in us, and they're often expressed in an 
immature way, but they are good things. That desire for fairness, a desire for truth, a desire for friendship and compassion. Moses was like that too. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 25, the Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Hebrews writer demonstrates Moses' deeply felt sense of right and wrong. God raised him up to be a deliverer, and everything in him wanted to do just that. I can imagine him as a child playing some sort of Egyptian board game and getting really mad if he thought his friends were cheating. Moses wanted to stand apart. He wanted to be holy. He wanted to do the right thing. But then when he went out the next day, behold, Two Hebrews were struggling together, as we keep going in the passage. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. It's unclear if God approved of Moses' initial efforts, but they ended in failure. I like to wonder these things, you know, we'll, we'll never know. We can ask God when we see him. But it's unclear if God was watching Moses thinking, that's my guy, do your best. Or maybe God was watching him and saying, oh, what are you doing? You're going about this all wrong. It seems that Moses, by looking around this way and that, as it says in the first passage when he strikes the Egyptian and kills him, it seems like he was looking around, thinking that no one was watching, but he was doubly wrong. Yes, someone did see, because word got around the very next day. It says the next day he tried to stop this quarrel, and they knew all about him killing the Egyptian. Word got around in the, in the camp. But the greater problem was he didn't realize that God was watching. It says he looked this way and that. He looked maybe to the left and to the right, but he did not think to look up. He wasn't acting or thinking in the presence of God, but rather completely on his own without sanction or direction. It's a rookie mistake, but an easy one to make, certainly one I've made so many times. But I have to laugh a little bit at this idea of Moses looking this way and that and trying to sneak one, trying to trying to sneak around and do his secret stuff. Think about our kids. Our kids are never so loud and so obvious as when they're trying to sneak around. Um, they, they, they will make a normal amount of noise in, uh, in, in the house as they go about their, their play. But then when they try to move silently from one room to another, as parents, we can tell immediately, like, oh, that's a purposeful sneaky sound. And uh, one of our, or two of our kids, sometimes when they'll walk by our door, um, when they're going from one room to another up to, up to mischief, they'll stare at us with wide open eyes as if to communicate their innocence. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's like that with us and God too. He sees us. He knows what's going on, even if we don't. But that brings us to, uh, to the second point. First point is what came before, and that, that was a flashback to the, the, the very beginning of Moses' ministry. And then he failed. 
he, he fled. He fled out of Egypt into Midian uh, with his tail between his legs, full of shame and, and doubt and probably just questioning what he's, what he's put on earth to do. He tried to do the thing that seemed right and, and failed. And now what? What just happened? And we can read that too as, as, uh, as Old Testament readers. We think, what, isn't this Moses our hero? God's chosen deliverer? He messed up and fell on his face, just like we do. But God is gracious, and even in our defeats and in our embarrassment, God goes with us just like he went with Moses. God saw what he could make out of Moses. In Hebrews eleven twenty-seven, the Bible says, By faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, which is true, but it's not true yet, because the passage we just read was Moses at 40, fleeing Egypt for the first time specifically and exactly out of fear of the king's anger. But God knew what Moses could become, and he knew that the next time Moses would leave Egypt, it would be out of faith and not out of fear. He was able to bounce back, but he also had another opportunity to bounce back here. The Bible keeps going in, uh, in Exodus 3. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. God is gracious. He notices when people are sneaking, but he also notices when people sit down next to wells. You can look it up. That's like the best way of getting God's attention, biblically speaking. Sit down next to a well. Something's going to happen. Uh, in Exodus 2.16, I misspoke. I said Exodus 3. We're in Exodus 2. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. This is the land to which he fled. And they came and drew water from the well and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, this man had two names, he's also named Jethro, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the, hands of the, out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us, and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread, so that we may show hospitality, is what he's saying there. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now talk about second chances. Everything that God sees in Moses gets to come out here. It gets to express itself in a really positive, constructive way. Moses' concern for the oppressed, his desire for justice, his physical courage and toughness, his willingness to stand up, be a defender. It works. And what was different? What was different about him defending the women at the well versus his desire to defend the Israelites from depredation and to protect and to make peace amongst them. Why did Moses, uh, why did God give Moses a victory here when he allowed him to fail earlier? Maybe God wanted to take him out of his home field advantage. Being in unfamiliar territory can make us rely on God rather than our own selves. Maybe the instances in Egypt were more about Moses looking to make a name for himself, 
The opportunity to, to defend Jethro's daughters was really forced on him by circumstance. He wasn't looking for it. It got to sort of come out of him more naturally. I don't know. Maybe the timing wasn't right. Israel maybe wasn't ready for deliverance. They didn't recognize Moses' inheritance or trust him. But just in a few more years, the time would be right. And I really think that's probably the best explanation um, for why his earlier attempt failed, but then he was able to have victory in defending the women at the well. In Exodus 2, 23, the Bible says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So whatever God's deeper purposes were, Moses grew up during the next 40 years. Grew up a lot. In Egypt, he learned how to be a ruler, a nobleman, a scholar. But in Midian, he learned how to be a shepherd, which is in fact... The most critical set of rules or set of uh, lessons he would have to learn. That earlier failure certainly would have gnawed at him. If he's like me, his brain would have replayed exactly how it felt to get chased out of Egypt. Again, if Moses was like me, I'm sure that he would some nights wake up Zipporah, his wife, like I wake up Audrey, and just say, man, I can't stop thinking about insert dumb thing that I did in college. It just, it stays with you. It gnaws at you. Less so as time passes and you start to be able to process it, come to terms with your mistakes. But really, God has better things for Moses to do than to dwell on his failures. He certainly has better things for you to do, too, and for me. When we dwell on our past, it can keep us from appreciating what God is doing in our present. Let's look at Moses' present in Exodus 3, the time when he was the very most in the moment. Now Moses, verse 1, led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Interesting parallel there. When Moses struck and killed the Egyptian, first he looked one way and then the other. That was in vain. This time, he's looking successfully. He's looking with faith, and he sees, he sees, he sees the presence of God, whereas before he completely missed the presence of God. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. That mountain was Horeb, also called Sinai. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, 
What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses doesn't say, well, it's about time, God. I wanted to do that 40 years ago. Maybe I would have been tempted to respond that way, but Moses was humble. He was humbled and awed by the holiness of God. From now on in his life, Moses will walk and live and grow in the presence of God. Will you? God can't be turned on and off like a switch. Once you know that he's present in your life, you can't unknow him. You can dull yourself with sin. You can distract yourself with lesser things. You can lie to yourself, self-serving arguments, but God remains. Hebrews 4.12 says, And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We all have to do. We all have to give account to God. Moses, Aaron, and the people in this crisis situation had to give account as well, just like we will. The bill comes due. Class, put your pencils down. Turn in your assignment. Let's go on to point three, by faith. Going back to where we started, we have Moses coming down the mountain. We have the people in the throes of idolatry. We have Aaron offering weak, just weak sauce excuses. And we have God, ready to let the covenant be permanently broken. So what will Moses do? Exodus 32, verses 11 through 16. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So what did Moses do here? How had he grown? How had he blossomed in the desert? It's a much larger problem that Moses was facing than just breaking up a couple of fights. He tried to do that back in Egypt. Failed. This is a whole lot worse. This is a whole nation in rebellion. What did he do, though? First, he turned to God. This wasn't just a, a sort of a desperation play, but he was turning to God as an intimate friend. He had learned during his time in, uh, in, in Midian what God cared about. He knew that when God said, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, he was actually giving Moses an opening. Just like Abraham dared to bargain with God in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham said, Far be it from you, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Just like in the same way, God desired friendship with Moses. Moses interceded for his people. Merriam-Webster defines intercession as 
to come between parties with a view to reconciling differences. That's exactly what God wanted from Moses. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Moses was an amazing man, but he was also sinful. And he was not able to intercede perfectly for his people every single time. And even if he could, he only lived 120 years. Even that very long time is not sufficient to keep to continue to intercede for the entire world. The Hebrews writer is talking, of course, about Jesus. How Jesus is the perfect intercessor, the perfect mediator, the perfect deliverer and savior. The more you realize that you're in a fallen world with surrounded by people in open rebellion against God, the more you're being called to intercessory prayer, just like Moses was. He started not by complaining about the Israelites, not by yelling at them, not by venting. He went straight to God and prayed for the good of the people. And then he brought the law, prayer, listening, and understanding. Those, those are all critically important. And he did all of those things, but he didn't just stay up the mountain with God. He came down and he tried again. Then he made a prophetic statement by smashing the tablets. He warned them of the danger that they were in. And then finally, he rallied the Levites to his side, taking deliberate action, punishing with death unrepentant, rebellious leaders, which is definitely a harder concept for us to uh, to come to terms with today. It's not it's nothing that I'm comfortable with, probably any of you. But when you look at the historical context, they were in a life or death situation out there in the wilderness. And if they dissolved as a nation, the lives of everyone was were at, at stake. And the best option was to uh, uh, was to punish with death those who were threatening God's people. But then Moses made atonement. He made reconciliation for the people. In Exodus chapter 3, verse uh, 30 and 31, The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. All of these things that Moses did were the acts of a mature, faithful believer, the kind of man that I aspire to be. And they all pointed towards Jesus' work on the cross. Atonement, redemption, deliverance, salvation. Moses learned them through defeats and setbacks. He learned them through times of waiting and, yeah, through smaller victories along the way. He really bloomed in the desert. The desert is not a colorful, life-filled place most of the time. My parents retired to New Mexico, and uh, for the most part, it is brown and red and rocky. But every so often, it does rain. And when it rains, the whole desert landscape just explodes in life with 
flowers and green shoots and it's uh, it's it's remarkable you think this place is this you, you would have thought that the place was dead but then you realize there was so much waiting there and growing just not quite visible yet and i think that's how it was with moses in his time in egypt his time in midian he was putting down roots the seeds of faith were growing in his heart and when they came out, when they bloomed, when they blossomed, it was a sight to behold. He did God's work. He saved the people. He stood in between God and the people and saved them all from, from themselves, frankly. And isn't this the kind of Christian life that we want to live? Let's wrap it up. We'd like to learn through victory, right? That would be ideal. I would love to go from victory to victory, success to success, just racking up life lessons and just becoming a better guy. But that's not usually how it works. Audrey and I, my wife, we bought some raffle tickets last month for a uh, jet black 1970 Chevelle. It was a Ronald McDonald House fundraiser, so that's how I justified it. It's a charitable contribution, but hey, we might get a sweet muscle car out of it. And then I thought, you know, let's be spiritual about this. I thought, God, this would really teach me gratitude if we were to win this thing. Like, I would really, really get grateful. And God, in his infinite wisdom, uh, chose to teach gratitude to somebody else. That's okay. Can't say I was, uh, I can't say I was surprised. But to be honest, we learn gratitude through what we don't have a whole lot more than what we do have. I still remember trying to work out our budget in the, um, it was the winter of 2011, 2012, and we had the World Discipleship Conference in San Antonio coming up that summer. We just got our tax rebate check, and I was figuring out, okay, I've got these debts, I've got to pay off, there's some house stuff, there's some car things, credit card, and we, we just took care of all of that, zeroed out, and then realized there's nothing left for the conference. And I, you know, we we planned to go, and we were we were going to go, but we were out of money. And I remember just being so frustrated that I went outside into the backyard, and just yelled at God. I was I was sick of it. And we made it work. I don't quite remember how. I don't know if we made super wise financial decisions or if we just sort of gritted our teeth and went anyway and caught up later um but the conference was great and it was worth it was worth going and we we didn't suffer any ill financial effect it was it was all positive but really what i remember the most was the fact that god heard my prayer and that's what stays with me 11 years later even more than the lessons of the conference i remember being in that little minor crisis point thinking what am I going to do here? I'm kind of at the end of my financial rope. And that's where God wants us to be, not all the time, but in these critical moments when it's time to learn something important. He wants us to be in that state of dependence, of maybe maybe a little bit of maybe a little bit of panic, but where we're thinking seriously about life and death issues, consequences. We're thinking about what matters most in life, and we're, we're stretched, maybe almost to our breaking point. 
And then we learn to trust God when our own efforts come up short. We learn God's holiness in contrast to our own unholiness. We learn that God won't be trifled with or treated lightly by rough experience, whether whether uh, whether we've treated God lightly and then suffer the consequences, or we see somebody else not take their spiritual walk seriously, and we see things fall apart. I can't tell you the number of times when something like that has happened in, in my life, when I see myself just fall on my face, or I see a friend um, just really uh, walk away from God, and it puts a, puts a fear in us. It, um, it really shakes us. But that's when we learn. That's when we realize this isn't, we're not playing church here. This is real life. And I want to say one, one thing to the, uh, if, if anybody's made it this far, and we're wrapping up now, but I want to say one thing about age and time. For Moses, his, uh, the, the before picture, when he, when he failed, when he, um, when he tried to break up the fight and when he killed the Egyptian, he was 40. And when he, led Egypt, uh, when he led Israel out of Egypt, he was 80. And so we're talking about a time scale of 40s, right? He lived 40 whole years as a prince of Egypt, and then 40 more years in Midian, and then came back and the exodus happened. So we can sometimes think, well, these kinds of lessons, spiritual growth, maturity, they're for the middle-aged, they're for the old, they're for... They're for the people who think in terms of decades, but really that's not the case. I, I remember when I was a teenager, I perceived time differently. I mean, things would change in my life from week to week or month to month, and God works with that. He can, he can grow a young person quickly in, in, in really drastic ways. He can work in your life over the course of a few days, a few weeks, or a few months. He happened to take... He happened to see, to deal with Moses in uh, four decades at a time, but that's not a hard and fast rule. If you're a teenager, college student, he might be working on you in in uh, semester in the in terms of semesters. If you're a new parent, he might be working on you from from uh, from bedtime to bedtime, trying to figure out your kid's routine. If you're older and you have that greater appreciation for the span of your life, I think you will start to see how God works on the, in the long term. But he's not bound by that. He can move quickly. He can move slowly. He moves on his own timetable. And I want to ask us, what challenges are you facing now? What difficulties have you gone through recently? Define recently however you will. Recently can be today or recently can be that thing that happened five years ago that you're still holding on to, you still haven't worked through, processed yet. What are those challenges? We have some dear brothers and sisters in our congregation and other friends of our congregation who are going through real health challenges, loss of family members, change or loss of jobs. These sorts of things are, they're hard. They're not the kind of thing you can just wave your hand at and say, oh, grow through it. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That's not a loving attitude. It's not a, it's not a constructive or productive attitude. It makes light of what are really serious challenges in people's lives. But they are 
things that we have to take to God. And we have to consider what are we facing, what difficulties have we gone through, and how might God be working on us, working through those things to mold us and change us into the kinds of people he wants us to be. I think sometimes I feel like a desert. Sometimes I feel like there's no life. Everything is just routine. That's my that's my tendency, my sinful tendency. I just kind of go into shut down robot mode, get up, do my job, do the family responsibilities, watch a, you know, watch some TV, go to bed. And that's my that's that's my desert living. That's uh, there's no there's not not a whole lot of sign of life there. But it's in the challenges where God can really bring about some incredible, unexpected, spectacular growth. I think a faithful man or woman can remember the hard times that came before, like Moses had hard times before him. They can bounce back and not quit. A faithful man or woman can, by faith, persevere so that we too, like Moses, can bloom in the desert. Thank you. I hope that was helpful, and if you liked it, would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're in the Charlottesville, Virginia area, would like to stop in and visit us at a Sunday service, please send us a note or visit our website at blueridgedisciples.org for more information.